Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining this webinar about uh, Bermuda data privacy. Thank you for sparing the time. It's very much appreciated. As uh, people are still joining, we'll cover off some housekeeping aspects. And uh, I have a thank you to say. Um, thank you to uh, Sheridan Smith, who um, helps with the uh, ISE um, charter, um, chartering chapter in uh, Bermuda. Um, thank you very much for sponsoring and helping um, raise uh, awareness of this webinar today. It's very much appreciated. So today uh, we've got some high-level objectives and um, some housekeeping. So these are the things that we're going to run through today. We're going to establish uh, what uh, PIPA is and how it might affect your organisation and the actions that you need to take to prepare. Um, we're going to talk about the international data privacy and cybersecurity landscape. And we're going to talk about some of the similarities uh, between PIPA and GDPR and also with NYCRR 500. But some of you might be calling um, the NYDFS regulation, uh, but its uh, full name is the very catchy NYCRR 500. We're also going to talk about where to get further help and information. And uh, there'll be an uh, opportunity for you to ask any questions. Um, so please do do that as we go along. You'll notice in the GoToWebinar application that we're using for this webinar um, that there's a, a box usually on the right-hand side of your screen uh, where you can actually type questions. Please do ask those questions as we go along. I will be prompting you as we get closer to question time to uh, to ask those questions and to make sure that you've got them uh, got them asked before we run out of time. So final housekeeping. Um, as I said, any questions there? and the webinar will be recorded and we will be making it available as both a uh, video and as a podcast in the next few days. So without further ado, let's start talking about what uh, PIPA is. And I'm going to be for the duration of this uh, webinar and I'll probably slip up, but I'll be calling it PIPA. I know um, it seems to be some debates as to whether it's PIPA, Piper, um, but I'm going to be calling it PIPA. Just to, just to pick a side and to stick with it. So a little bit of background about uh, PIPA. Um, we can see that uh, PIPA has been around since 2016, became a law in 2016. That doesn't mean that it was enforced um, during that time. There was a two-year period uh, for enforcement um, and implementation. That's 2016 to 2018. And then PIPA enforcement actually comes in at the end of 2018. Okay, the Act itself isn't um, specific about that, but uh, the Bermuda government has said that they're looking to have this in place um, at the end of 2018. So uh, throughout this, you'll, uh, you'll see me um, talking about the latter part of 2018 and, and December 2018. As we move through this chart, the first uses of PIPA by individuals, so um, individuals actually asserting their rights and asking questions about the data that organizations are keeping on them. Uh, that's going to be in 2019. And potentially the first uh, PIPA legal cases are going to come to um, come to bear during 2019 as well. And we'll talk about what those are and why there will definitely be legal cases in the case of uh, PIPA. On the right hand side here, we talk about some of the um, some of the details. Um, some of these uh, are very similar to regulations in other parts of the world. Um, particularly uh, the definition of a child that uh, complies with uh, COPA in the USA and also, uh, broadly speaking, GDPR in Europe. So there are some real um, similarities. One of the differences uh, is the way that fines will be administered under PIPA. Um, in the case of Bermudian, G um, Bermudian data privacy, so PIPA, um, it's going to be determined by the courts. So that's one of the reasons, at least, why there will definitely be legal cases, because um, unlike GDPR, where the, uh, the fines could be administered by uh, the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK or uh, another data protection authority, um, in Bermuda, it's going to be administered purely by the courts and decided purely by the courts. PIPA's objective is um, very much around bringing data privacy to Bermuda. Um, and I would argue as well that there's, a, I think there's a longer term goal to achieve um, equivalency with 
European data protection and um, North American data protection where that becomes appropriate. And I think uh, we'll talk a little bit later about North American data protection, but I think uh, with all the uh, aspects of the Facebook case recently, there's definitely going to be a heightened level of data protection regulation in the USA. Okay, I'm going to run through some of the definitions of PIPA. This is really to set the baseline and make sure everyone's got at least some understanding of what PIPA is and uh, what some of the terminology is. And if you're not familiar with uh, with PIPA or any of these terms, it's really going to serve as a good introduction for you. If you are familiar with those, then perhaps it will act as a refresher. But um, nevertheless, I think it's a good baselining to make sure that everyone's at the same level. So an individual, um, this is the um, the natural person who is um, essentially the subject of the personal data or the sensitive personal data. So if you're storing details about um, a, a person that you're using, whose details you're using for marketing, uh, you know, uh, John Smith, for example, and they have an email address, John Smith would actually be the natural person and would be the individual in that case. Uh, personal data is any information about an identified or identifiable in individual. Okay, I've given some examples here. So a name uh, can be personal data, an employee ID is personal data. Employee appraisals are very often um, um, considered to be personal data too. Um, a social security number or national insurance number or similar is also a uh, is personal data obviously bank account details all of the all of those items there now the last one i put on there is ip address um, now some of the more uh, it orientated people on the call might think oh, well an ip address um you know doesn't necessarily identify an individual but in other parts of the world an ip address is considered to be personal data it's not defined specifically within uh, pipa but it may be one of those areas of consideration because pipa uh, doesn't specify or give a long list of, um, of uh, examples, if you like, of personal data. Very much leaves it up to the company to, to decide or the organization to decide what their personal data is. Now, sensitive personal data. Now, I'm not going to read all of this out, but I'm gonna, I am going to give a couple of examples. Sensitive personal data tends to be the sorts of things that or include the sorts of things that people have historically um, been persecuted for or differentiated on. So things like origin, race, color, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, those kind of things, mental health uh, details, you can see all of the details there. Um, they're the kind of things that are by their very nature, that little bit more personal, a little bit more sensitive. So if you're capturing information of this type, then you need to be particularly careful and be particularly sure that you need to capture all of this information in order to provide the service to the individual. And in addition to um, what's usually gathered at this time or usually uh, defined as personal information, you notice as well the last two there, biometric information and genetic information, as this is increasingly commonly uh, captured either in you know hospitals or used for identification purposes, it's now become part of the sensitive, sensitive personal data. And that's, this, that's very similar to GDPR as well. In fact, this list itself is very, very similar to GDPR. There's a couple of extra things on here uh, for PIPA than appears on GDPR, but essentially they're very, very similar and have the same intention. Use, um, so use of personal data particularly. Now, I, uh, I looking through this list, you really can't find anything that you can do with personal data that isn't considered to be use. Um, you know, the, the obtaining, the recording, holding, storing, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on um, right the way through the full data life cycle. So essentially, if you are collecting personal data or doing anything with personal data in Bermuda, um, you're going to have to be uh, PIPA compliant. Privacy notices are a way and means of raising the awareness of the individual about the data that you're collecting um, and what you're going to be doing with it and who else is going to be doing, doing things with it. So this is a, 
uh, a mandatory requirement when you're obtaining an individual's um, consent um, to uh, process their data. Now, I'll talk more about consent in a moment, but it is a very important concept. So um, if it's not one that you're familiar with, then please do make sure you pay attention to the, uh, to the consent slide. But when you're gaining consent, you must ensure that the individual is well informed about um, what they're um, providing their data for and how it's going to be used who it's going to be used for, who it's going to be used by, and where it's going to be sent. So if it's going to be sent offshore outside of Bermuda, then you need to make sure that the um, organization you're sending it to um, is going to process and use that data in the right ways in accordance with your purpose. And also that um, that the individual is aware of the, the, the reasons and the, the location of that data being sent, where it's going to be sent. So here we go with um, consent. Now, um, consent has to be um, a, a, an active decision by the individual. Now, there are circumstances where that's not possible. Okay. Now, you you can think about those uh, what those would be for your business. But one example that I tend to use uh, when talking to people from different um, sectors is a recruitment agency, for example. So a recruitment agency may encourage people to send their CVs and resumes through to them by email. Okay, Now, that may or may not be a good way to send personal data, but if that's uh, what they're doing and the individual um, consents to that process by sending their, uh, their CV or their resume by email, then they've actually consented to that process. Now, at that point, obviously, the recruitment agency hasn't had the opportunity to present their privacy notice or do any of that other information um, at that point. So um, obviously they've they've got assumed consent there by virtue of the person sending the information through. Now there's a best practice associated with this which would be to actually send a copy of the privacy notice back in those kind of cases um, so that the person can opt out if they didn't realize what they were actually signing themselves up for. Um, but that's uh, that's the kind of best practice. Other best practices: uh, make sure that it's opt-in, so the person's actually um, you know ticking that tick box on the web form. Um, making sure that you're recording the consent uh, very important, far more important in uh, in PIPA, and particularly if you're doing business uh, with uh, Europe as well. That's particularly important. And where it's appropriate ask for multiple consent. So you may get an on-screen consent uh, from a web form, for example, and where appropriate, send a secondary consent request through to an email address, for example. That's particularly important if you're dealing with um, children or you're dealing with um, um, the elderly or the infirm or people who may not be able to um, always make um, consent or give consent um, on their own or either in or um, maybe confused by the consent process. So just make sure you're covering off all the bases there. Okay, let's talk about what some of the impacts on the organization are and how uh, PIPA will change things a little bit for organizations. Now, Obviously, the impacts of any on any org, any one organisation are going to differ and vary uh, from you know from organisation to organisation. But what I've tried to cover here is cover some of the um, some of the bases where these things will affect most organisations. And you can think about others that are specific to your organisation. And I'm more than happy to um, you know both in questions or indeed um, to have a call with uh, people afterwards to. Um, run through some of those differences and uh, and apply it more to your business if that's appropriate. One of the big impacts is going to be changes in contracts. So if you uh, use your customers' personal data, so you're collecting their data, so you're a, a B2C kind of organization, uh, business to consumer, you must ensure that your contracts are appropriate for PIPA. Okay. Now, by appropriate, I mean that they are including aspects of data protection, that they are making it clear where the, um, where the individual should uh, contact, should they have a question or a complaint. So that's really going to be uh, a duplicate of your privacy notice in all likelihood. But all of that information needs to be included in your contract so that you're ensuring that the 
the individual is informed about what their data is going to be used for. They understand their rights as a data subject and sorry, an individual and how those um, can be applied and used uh, within your organization or with your organization. Some examples of the kind of contracts that uh, those on the line are likely to be um, encountering and um, may need to update. Um, in insurance policy applications, uh, very obviously, where you're capturing personal data there, um, you're going to need to make sure that the terms are updated so that they include all the information I just spoke about. Uh, bank account applications, again, uh, another one, and there'll be many, many others. But those two are very, very obvious ones and ones that most people can understand, um, irrespective of their business sector and business experience. Now, the other side of changes in contracts is if you are a third party provider, so you actually provide a service to another organization. So you process the personal data, use that personal data in order to provide a service to the organization that collects the data in the first place. So if you are doing that, again, your data um, uh, privacy statements within your contracts with your clients um, have to be updated. So this is very much a B2B, business to business uh, kind of arrangement. So your contracts have to be updated uh, to uh, ensure that you will be processing the data only in, in accordance with uh, PIPA and the original purpose. And uh, you also have to make sure that you are going to be able to make uh, and adhere to any service level agreements um, relating to uh, data privacy and uh, the requirements of uh, uh, PIPA as well. So think around the, the, the kind of contracts that you have in place with your organizations now. Uh, with your clients organizations and uh, how that might need to change At the very least you're definitely going to have to review your contracts to ensure they're compliant maybe that you're um, you're very good and everything's covered off already but the likelihood is there's going to be at least a few updates there if only to include your updated privacy notice and thank you very much i can see uh, questions um, coming in that's excellent news um, please don't be shy ask as many questions as you like and we'll certainly get to as many as we can um, towards the end. You're going to need good, strong policies within your organization. Now, um, if you're working for an international organization, as many of you are uh, on, this, uh, on this call, it may be that you've got policies in place already that uh, are going to be perfectly suitable and meet all the requirements of PIPA. Um, if you don't have all the policies in place at the moment, then you're definitely going to need to put those in place because PIPA asks and demands that you can demonstrate your compliance with, um, you know, with, the, with the act, with the law. So you need to be able to do that. And um, the way that you can do that is through your policies and also through educating your staff as well, making sure your staff are aware so that your policies don't just become shelfware. You know, they don't just... Uh, get written and uh, typed up in, um, you know, lovely and beautiful fonts on, you know, thick paper, and then they sit in a sit in a filing cabinet or on a shelf somewhere, uh, never to be looked at again. And everyone just does what they need to do to get the job done. So make sure your policies are up to date and enacted, and that people actually know about them. Some examples of the types of policies that you're likely to need, um, and uh, obviously you may have. Uh, these combined into, you know, into one document, or they may all be separate documents as I've uh, represented them here. Uh, but you're definitely going to need a data privacy policy. Hopefully that's clear already. Um, you're going to need an information security policy. Um, sometimes those get joined together and that's okay, but you're definitely going to need to cover off the basis of both of those. You're going to need a data continuity policy because you need to keep the data safe um, from destruction. Um, you know, that's part of the PIPA is you keep it safe, the data safe for and available for use and from uh, erroneous disruption. You're going to need a data retention policy um, just to make sure that you're only keeping the data um, for the right length of, length of time, the right period. And you're going to make sure that you are um, working with your vendors and selecting your vendors in the right way. So you're going to need a vendor selection and vendor management policy and system. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. 
your business processes are going to change uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. There'll be some changes. They may be major, they may be minor, depending on the size of your organization and the type of business you're in. So if you're a reinsurer, for example, you're less likely to have major changes uh, in your business process, processes than if you're a B2C um, you know, insurer, um, you know, processing personal lines, for example. Um, the types of changes that uh, are going to need to take place, um, they'll vary slightly, but it's going to be things like uh, processes for dealing with the applicant's requests for their personal information. Uh, we'll talk about some of the rights of the individual in a moment, um, but making sure that you've got the business processes in place to deal with some of those. Um, uh, other processes, um, making sure that you can um, deal with the request for data corrections. So this isn't just the ability to correct data within your systems and databases and things, it's actually having a, a process and the ability for uh, an individual to contact your organization or notify them that there's a change that needs to be made and the you know this is the details of the change. It's likely that your business systems are going to have to change too. Um, very much going on the basis of um, uh, what's been necessary uh, under the GDPR, there are lots of different uh, system changes that have been required. And because GDPR and PIPA are quite similar in some respects, I'm anticipating similar kinds of changes um, in Bermuda. Now, where you're using systems that are compliant with GDPR already, then um, you may already be compliant even without knowing it. You may be able to configure those uh, those changes in. Where you've either got in-house systems or uh, your systems are actually a combination of spreadsheets or something um, like that, then you're going to have to think about what those changes need, uh, what changes need to be made and how they might impact your organization. And as far as possible, you're going to want adherence to uh, PIPA and the other regulations around the world to be um, as automated as possible. So things like um, um, automated document destruction or data destruction when you meet uh, a retention um, date. Um, when I say automatic, obviously you're going to get warnings before it happens, but um, essentially if you ignore the warnings or if the, uh, the warnings are um, you know, if the warnings are just that, then you will uh, ultimately have your data um, deleted. You can obviously build the workflows that are appropriate for you, but you want to, as much as possible to become automated. You don't really want PIPA to become a, a large burden on your organization. Um, breach monitoring is another, um, another good one. Um, uh, having software and systems in place to monitor access to your organization's data. If you're a large, larger organization, again, you've perhaps already looked at this or perhaps have things in place. Um, but do consider all of these things and think about how you can um, ease the burden and actually improve the safety and the resiliency of your organization through these changes. User access is always a you know it's a common one, um, and uh, many organisations will think they've got uh, this well under control. But a number of times that uh, Fifth Step has done um, security audits or indeed GDPR audits, and you know we find that um, you know some of the most powerful people within the organisation are the graduates who came in on the graduate training programme who have moved from one department to the next, to the next, to the next. And before you know it, they have access to all of the systems because access is given but never taken away because it's not so common for people um, historically to move from department to department to department. Um, uh, and with a new grad program, for example, sometimes those things get overlooked. So make sure you've got all the appropriate changes in place and consider um, the IT changes and the business system changes as part of your uh, PIPA compliance uh, project and program. So here's some thoughts on which kinds of organizations and which departments are affected the most. And this is based on uh, Fifth Step's experience of implementing data privacy regulation around the world um, for the last seven years, as I say there on the slide. Um, there's certainly some commonality. Um, financial services organizations um, and others within highly um, com um, governed and governance orientated and highly regulated um, sectors tend to be very um, affected. So insurers, brokers, reinsurers, banks, uh, and particularly those dealing with personal lines and uh, the retail banks uh, particularly. Um, 
if you work for one of those organizations, hopefully you're already aware of uh, PIPA and you're going to be making those changes or perhaps already on your way. Law firms are also um, uh, exposed now the, um, you know, with uh, minimal mention of uh, things like the Panama Papers and things like that. Law firms uh, collect a lot of personal data and that personal data is sometimes unstructured, you know, meaning that it's in Word documents or um, you know, in PowerPoint uh, presentations even sometimes. So think about that kind of aspect. If you're a law firm and you're collecting lots of Word documents or lots of PDF documents, chances are you've got personal uh, data in there. Uh, and think about how you're securing those. Is it appropriate? Is it PIPA compliant? Um, and how are you going to deal with that um, going forward? Online retailers, um, I know there's a couple of organizations who are, um, are represented today. Um, uh, on this webinar who are online retailers. Um, on online retailers tend to collect a lot of personal data. It tends to be a very B2B, uh, sorry, B2C orientated um, businesses. Um, so make sure the data you're collecting is both minimal and appropriate and that you're, uh, and that you're compliant, okay? Healthcare providers goes without saying, you guys are collecting a lot of personal data and also sensitive personal data. So you have to make sure whether you're an insurer uh, providing um, uh, health cover or whether you are actually part of the uh, health giving and healthcare uh, community, um, you have to make sure that you are um, complying with PIPA and making sure that you're um, making the information available um, as appropriate, but also keeping it safe and secure. Hopefully nothing there that's a surprise to anyone. Now, as we're for the departments, so across irrespective of sector, these are the departments we tend to find are impacted by increases and changes in data privacy regulation. So HR departments um, capture a whole heap of personal data. And they very often have to change the way that they're working or look at the way they're securing the data to make sure that they're um, remaining uh, compliant with that regulation. Marketing departments also hold a lot of data and you know, with PIPA and with uh, GDPR, um, it's likely to lead to changes in how organizations will be um, uh, conducting their marketing going forwards and how that might, uh, you know, how they collect lists and things like that. In-house legal counsel for similar reasons to the law firms, um, um, you know, they have to go through all of the contracts, they have to make sure that everything is compliant and they have to understand and be up to speed with PIPA um, you know, very quickly. IT departments, just because there's a lot of IT change very often, um, you know, it's, uh, you, you can't do much of that stuff uh, very often without uh, at least some involvement with IT departments, even if you're buying software off the shelf, um, you know, there'll be updates to some of this um, software, either for GDPR or for PIPA or for other regulation that you're going to need to uh, need to apply. Finance departments, they um, they often have to go through a number of uh, changes and, iterate, and iterations um, on this because they hold very often hold more financial um, sensitive and uh, personal information than is sometimes appreciated. And procurement departments, just from the perspective of you need to make sure you're holding your vendors um, and your suppliers to account. Now, I've talked about third parties a little bit um, earlier on and the importance, uh, particularly if you are a third party service, servicing a client, of how you're going to um, you remain compliant. But um, if a supplier is responsible for misuse of a data breach, okay, um, the company, so the, um, the collector of the data, still remains liable under PIPA. So you need to think about this. It's not uh, that, oh, well, I hired a third party, it's their fault. Um, you still retain liability um, under PIPA. So um, outsourcing um, under uh, both PIPA and GDPR is absolutely fine to do, absolutely fine. You just mean, need to make sure that you've got your vendor management systems and processes in place and that they are PIPA fit, okay? Now, if you're unsure what that means beyond that, okay, it's going to mean that your third parties um, can adhere to the service level agreements that you need them to adhere to in order to comply. So if you get a um, an access request, so someone asking for their data, a copy of their data, for example, and that's held in a, a third party's um, system, 
uh, that third party has to be able to uh, extract that data and provide that report to you in enough time that you can still comply with um, the SLAs under under PIPA. So consider those uh, basic uh, things. Very much it's just about good vendor management, but we need to just make sure that um, you know that we're uh, that your processes are there and that you're actually uh, monitoring and measuring and making sure that they're um, that they're um, correct in an ongoing fashion, not just a one and done when you hire the uh, the third party. You know, uh, you need to be going back, you know, month after month, and making sure that they're still fit, that they're still doing the good job, that their processes haven't slipped, that their cybersecurity uh, processes and approach to cybersecurity hasn't slipped or something. Now, under PIPA, you have to be able to report a breach without undue delay. Okay, now that doesn't give a specific time frame, and that's a little bit different to most of the other regulation around the world. Most of the other regulation around the world, um, you know, such as the NYCRR 500 and GDPR, both of those are settled on 72 hours, um, and that's 72 working hours, and it's um, sorry, 72 hours from the point where the breach is identified, not 72 hours, um, you know, from when. Um, you know, when it's discovered on a Friday, um, you know, we stop the clock over the weekend or anything like that. It's 72 hours, the clock starts running and doesn't stop until the 70, 72nd hour is reached. Okay, so undue delay um, gives a little bit more latitude in Bermuda, but don't be fooled into a false sense of security on this. Um, this edition of PIPA is unlikely to be the last um, update to this, in my opinion. Um, I think that there'll be, you know, subsequent updates and uh, refinements in a few years' time, and that's very, very normal for this kind of um, documentation. Um, you know, to give you um, a, a very potted history of um, of uh, some of the other regulations, for example, they tend to be updated sort of every 10 to 15 to 20 years, depending on, um, you know, how much change needs to be implemented. So that may mean that you've got another 10 years before it's updated again, but don't let your organization get lulled into a false, false sense of security on this. You know, um, practice best practices, okay? Um, and if best practice is 72 hours, or if you can't achieve 72 hours, then whatever you can achieve, but make sure that you're breach ready. Okay, that you've got a good incident response plan um, that covers all of the bases, that you know what to do, that you know who you're going to communicate with, you know who's going to uh, do that communication. Make sure that you're prepared because I've been in breach situations that uh, where um, uh, where an organisation hasn't been ready. Okay, um, and I can tell you it's no fun um, trying to you know, pick up the pieces in a very short period of time and trying to establish whether the breach is ongoing or whether the hack is ongoing and things like that. So not fun and not, uh, um, you know, not the time to be trying to reinvent the wheel or invent a wheel in the first instance and, uh, you know, trying to decide who you're going to contact and who's going to do it. Okay, so be prepared for those kind of things. Have a breach readiness plan. Now, unlike uh, some of the other uh, data protection regulations, for example, the uh, Russian data protection uh, regulation, as well as GDPR, um, uh, and the Chinese uh, data uh, protection regulation, all three of those have uh, an aspect to them that says you can't send the data out of the, the country or the region um, in certain certain circumstances. So in the Russian data protection regulation, you can't send the data uh, about uh, Russian um, residents. Um, it all has to be stored within um, Moscow, oh, sorry, not Moscow, within uh, Russia. Um, now, PIPA, however, um, is a lot more uh, free going in, uh, in this respect. And it's very much down to the organization to decide whether um, it's appropriate and whether the, um, the organization in the country is um, will treat the data with the same level of respect and will adhere to and comply with PIPA. Okay, so have a think about that when you're actually transferring data between your 
um, you know, your, your vendors or your partners or indeed other parts of the group if you're part of a large international organization. Now, there is going to be some advice that's going to come from the Bermudian government in time, okay, about which countries are considered to have comparable protection. But essentially, make sure that you've got good contracts in place. Okay, it goes back to contracts that we spoke about earlier on. And make sure that the vendor who's processing the data on your behalf is going to be held accountable to PIPA, even if they are overseas. But you hold them to um, the, the same standards through your business contracts. Okay, so have a, have a think about what that means for you. If you send a large amount of, of personal data, um, outside of the country at the moment. And when I say um, send outside, that can be you use um, you know, Azure, um, you know, the Microsoft hosting data hosting environment, for example, to store your data. Um, that's actually sending it overseas. So have a think about what that means for your organization. Are there changes that you need to make? Are there business changes? Or um, are you perfectly happy with the way that um, your data will be considered uh, once uh, PIPA comes into enforcement? Now, I've talked a lot about um, some of the different types of um, data protection and international data protection. Okay, we're going to move on to uh, talk specifically about some of those now. And just another quick reminder, do, uh, I can see questions that are, are coming in, uh, but do please carry on asking those questions. It's always better to have more questions. Uh, if that's the case, I'll contact people afterwards and um, you know, circulate those and perhaps even answer them on the, the podcast or video version of this, uh, this webinar if we have too many but do please carry on asking those questions. Okay, here's a high level map of some of the data protection regulation and there really is a myriad of data protection. Now I've uh, deliberately left Bermuda off of here because we've been speaking about Bermuda a lot um, and about PIPA. Um, so I've deliberately left it off of this, uh, this slide, but you can see there's a lot of different data protection. Um, and but it's not all equal. So you'll see some of the key requirements and I've only pulled out five here um, to, um, to score them against, uh, you know, whether they need a CISO or a, or a data protection officer. So a chief information security officer or a data protection officer. Um, you know, do they uh, have a concept of personal data? Um, you know, do they have a concept of consent required? Do they have a breach notification requirement? And is it geosensitive? So can you send the data outside of the country or outside of the region, like I was, uh, um, like I was talking about earlier on? Um, let's just touch on a couple here. I hope this um, slide is fairly self-explanatory, but um, the European regulation is obviously GDPR, and I'm going to talk more about GDPR in a moment. So you know, let's talk about the Australian regulation, for example. Um, the Australian regulation there um, does have the concept of a CISO or D DPO. Um, they don't necessarily enforce it, but they do, um, they do recommend it. Uh, they do have a concept of personal data. Uh, they do usually require uh, consent, but it's not quite as strong as um, some of uh, the other uh, international regulation. And in some cases, they do need a breach notification, but it's not geographically sensitive. So um, Australian data can be sent to other locations under uh, Australian data protection law. Uh, the Russian uh, requirements there, I said uh, earlier on, uh, they've got a geosensitive um, aspect to them. They do have the concept of uh, consent and they do identify personal data, but they don't want anyone uh, specific to be in charge or in control of that data, such as a CISO or a DPO. It's the entire organization that remains responsible. And uh, let's do a, uh, another um, continental American uh, um, country in the shape of Argentina this time. Um, the Argentinian uh, regulation was actually based very much on the Data Protection Directive, which is the predecessor to GDPR. So um, they have uh, the concept of a CISO or a DPO, but they don't require it. They do have um, the recognition of personal data, but they don't have um, strong uh, consent requirements or breach notification or indeed geosensitivity requirements there. Okay, but um, Argentina at this point in time is recognized by the EU, um, however, as being um, a, an equivalent, having a data protection authority, sorry, data protection directive um, equivalents. So one of the few countries, I think there's about 13 different countries at the moment that have that. 
of which the USA is not uh, one of them, not natively anyway. Uh, there are a couple of things you can do in the US um, to, um, to become uh, equivalent, and that includes um, the EU-US privacy shield requirement. But if that's something that uh, you need to know more about, then uh, do feel free to ask a question about it, or I can uh, get in contact with you um, afterwards if you drop, uh, you know, drop uh, me an email through to the info at fifthstep.com email address. So let's talk about uh, PIPA's uh, similarities with the GDPR. Now on the left-hand side, um, this is the data subjects rights. Okay, so the rights of the data subject. Now a data subject in GDPR is more or less the same definition as the individual under PIPA. So it's the person whose data is being used. Okay. So the data subjects rights here, um, there are eight of them under GDPR and there's two that don't apply under PIPA. So I'll give you a real quick overview of these because it will apply to PIPA, um, uh, the PIPA rights as well. So the right to be informed is um, talks about how um, the data subject must be informed about what their data is going to be used for and how it's going to be used, who's going to use it, etc. So that's very much about the privacy no notification. Okay, the right of access is um, where the data subject or the individual under PIPA has the right to ask for a copy of their personal data. And the organization uh, who is uh, processing that data, using that data, must then uh, comply. Okay, now there are some ways and means you can defer that. Um, and there are even some cases where, um, where, uh, where, you, where an organization can say no, but on the whole, Okay, you have to uh, you have to comply. And if you're again, if you've got questions about what those edge cases may be, if you think that's going to be important to you, please ask it as a question, or indeed drop me an email, and I will uh, come back to you, and we can have a conversation about that. The right to rectification is the right to correction of data. So you must have a process um, to be able to correct data that's been identified by the data subject or the individual. The right to erasure, now being of the age I am, I usually make a joke here about uh, you know the right to other 80s uh, bands as well, but uh, as I get older, I find that uh, fewer and fewer people understand that joke, so perhaps I'll have to stop making it one day. Um, so the right to erasure is about the right to delete data. So a data subject or an individual can ask that their data be removed. Okay, And again, organizations can, in certain circumstances, say we can't remove this data, we can't delete this data because of other legal requirements, uh, for example, anti-money laundering is a very good, um, you know, case in point. So where the data, um, you know, where uh, PIPA or GDPR is um, surpassed by, you know, something like anti-money laundering regulation, um, it is actually surpassed. You must adhere to anti-money laundering, and the GDPR or PIPA is not, um, um, you know, does not apply in those cases. Uh, the right to restrict processing is having I, um, um, having uh, uh, identified uh, an issue with the data. Uh, the data subject or the individual um, has the right to restrict processing and say, actually, um, you can't process my data until either it's corrected or um, until I, uh, I have a good understanding of the fact that um, you, uh, you are taking my, uh, my complaint um, seriously. Uh, and the right to object to processing, very, very similar. Okay, that's about um, being able to control the use of the data and to be able to say, well, you said you're only collecting it for one purpose, uh, but now you've actually started to process it for another purpose. So you said you were going to collect it just to process my um, insurance policy, but now you're sending me emails advertising other insurance policies that I might be interested in. That may be, depending on the on the definition of purposes, that may be. Um, uh, you know, that may not be uh, appropriate. And the two that aren't applicable under uh, uh, PIPA, I'll cover those off um, uh, quickly. Uh, the right to data portability under the GDPR, a data subject has the right to extract a copy of their data, their personal data in machine readable form. Um, you can imagine um, the kinds of uh, websites uh, that are gonna make uh, full use of that, the, uh, the comparison. Uh, websites, insurance comparison websites, I'm absolutely sure are going to be doing a, uh, a thriving business once GDPR comes into enforcement in Europe um, at the end of May. Um, 
um, you know, uh, with every organization having to um, provide an electronic copy of their data. And that has to be in a, in a recognized machine readable format. So it can't just be a, an extract that no one can make use of. And the final uh, right under GDPR um, is the right to manual processing. Um, this gives a data subject the right under GDPR to request that their case be reviewed by a person where the decision has been made by a machine. So uh, let me use the example of if you're applying for a mortgage or for a loan, for example, um, very often these days that's processed with the minimal, minimal amount of human input. Um, the, um, the computer system will take into account how much you want to borrow, what the purpose of the loan is, and uh, your credit score, and then it'll go through a number of different uh, types and weigh other factors together, and then ultimately the computer will say yes or no. Now, if the computer says no at that point, then the data subject has the right to ask for their case to be reviewed manually, okay, to be processed manually. Um, it may be, for example, that they believe that there's another John Smith who lives next door and that, uh, that the, um, they believe that this uh, institution is perhaps confusing them with that, uh, with that John Smith. And if that's the case, um, then obviously they have to be able to process that information uh, manually, but then also update the information and make sure that that confusion doesn't occur again. So I hope that uh, explains some of the similarities um, and indeed a couple of the differences. So. Let's also talk about um, the uh, breach notifications. I mentioned earlier on that, um, that both uh, PIPA and, uh, the G and the GDPR um, require the notification of uh, a commissioner or the data protection authority, in the case of the GDPR, to be notified in case of a breach. So another similarity there. So if you've already got these controls in place, um, because you're part of a, a group that has offices in uh, in Europe and they've needed to comply with GDPR to make sure that uh, you're reusing those controls and understanding uh, those implications. And as I say at the top, PIPA is really a subset of GDPR in many respects, and it's probably easier to move uh, from uh, GDPR to PIPA than the other way around. So if you have a choice of which you implement, you might decide that you want to um, go that little bit further and be compliant with PIPA whilst obviously, uh, sorry, be compliant with GDPR whilst obviously being legal in respect to uh, PIPA. Depends what kind of organization you are, how fast you're growing, how likely it is that you're going to need to uh, comply with GDPR. If all of your business is um, targeted at um, Bermudian organizations, then chances are it's not going to be uh, the right thing for you to do to be targeting and becoming compliant with GDPR. Just stick with PIPA. Okay, but take that uh, take that view. And some of the similarities and some of the differences with um, NYCRR 500. So NYCRR 500, for those of you who are not aware of it, is uh, a piece of regulation in the US. Um, it's enforced by the New York um, Department of Financial Services, and it applies to financial services companies who are regulated out of New York. Okay, so it doesn't cover the whole of the United States um, and doesn't cover everything uh, by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it does have some similarities and indeed some differences um, to PIPA and to the GDPR for that matter. So um, PIPA and GDPR, uh, sorry, PIPA and MICRR 500 have very different objectives. Um, MICRR 500 is more data um, uh, security and information security and cyber security orientated, where of course PIPA is all about uh, data privacy. So they come at things from a slightly different perspective, but they end up with very similar approaches. And that's no mistake because both of them are uh, drawing upon and uh, codifying uh, best practices as far as possible. So both um, MICRR 500 and PIPA um, they share the concept of personal data. The definitions differ very slightly, and uh, NYCRR 500 is um, more, um, more targeted uh, towards financial data and things like that, but all of that said, it does have a definition. And both of them require breach notification, and both of them require a data protection officer or a CISO, okay? Where they differ, uh, NYCRR 500, uh, for example, mandates uh, multi-factor authentication and pen testing. Those things are not mandated under PIPA, although they are 
uh, a best practice. So many organizations may be doing them already or be, think, be thinking about it, but it's not mandated under PIPA. But if you are compliant with NYCRR 500 uh, in another part of your group, then that may be something that you can draw upon again. And uh, encryption is mandated. Um, now, encryption is one of those uh, things that lots of people talk about. Um, it's not the be-all and end-all, it's not uh, the panacea, but it is a tool in the toolbox. So um, if uh, uh, given that NYCRR 500 mandates it, then if you're going to do that, then that's great. That will definitely make you stronger and it will make it less likely that you're going to have a, a breach of uh, personal data in many cases. There are many, many, many different frameworks out there, and you know, so far I've been talking a lot about the regulatory ones: uh, GDPR, MICRR 500. There's HIPAA and there's COPA as well. So think about uh, think about those um, if you are part of a group and you can reuse some of those things. But don't reinvent the wheel. I mean, the purpose of me saying reuse, repurpose, reduce, and reduce sorry, reuse, repurpose, and reduce effort is very much about um, not reinventing the wheel. Um, reusing the controls that you've already got or where you haven't got those, make use of controls that are out there and frameworks that are out there such as ISO 27001, which is the international standard for information security, ISO 22301, which is the international standard for business continuity, the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is the North American standard for, um, uh, for cybersecurity, and the regulations that uh, I've already spoken about. Now, one of the things that uh, FISTEP has been helping a number of clients with is, particularly larger clients, is that they uh, they want a single global framework. And um, you know, this was considered um, improbable, if not impossible, by um, you know some organisations, just because um, there was lots of regulation coming coming in, and it was different, and it had a different orientation and stuff like that. Well, FISTEP's proven that that's not impossible, and we're actually doing that for a number of our of our clients and helping them helping them implement that. So, if uh, if that's something that's of interest um, to you, then do please um, let me know, and I'm more than happy to um, have a chat with you about that, and uh, or have someone else um, chat with you about it and go into some of the detail as appropriate. Um, and it really is useful if you're already an existing international uh, company or you're an expand, expanding business who needs to look at the future and make sure that they're, um, they're compliant or that they are governance and compliance ready um, for their future, then um, it really does um, help save time by making sure that you can be geographically agnostic and you can trade where the business is as opposed to having to set up new compliance and governance requirements as you move into a new region. I said that I'd give you some high-level next steps, and these are some of the high-level next steps. Now, um, you've still got um, a little bit of time, obviously, until um, PIPA comes into enforcement. Um, so um, I would encourage, if you haven't got a program, program or a project running at the moment for, about PIPA, um, I would encourage you to start um, at the very least with these um, simple next steps of understanding understanding your data protection and privacy maturity so where you are at the moment um, improving your understanding of your data you know what personal data have you got what sensitive personal data have you got do you need it all um, you know can you cut uh, down the amount of data you're using and collecting um, making sure you're improving your policies processes and procedures and readiness for PIPA um, implement and test your data breach plan make sure you've got one make sure it's tested and implement continual improvement now that may sound like a, almost a trite thing to say. You know, it's become a fashionable thing to say, something that FISTEP have been advocating for uh, for some time. But what we've seen in uh, in other parts of the world is that organisations implement their data compliance and data privacy requirements, and then they um, and then they uh, they finish. It's a one and done project. Okay. Well, it can't be like that if you're going to maintain your governance and requirements. Your governance requirements. Okay, on an ongoing basis, and the world's not quite like that anymore. So you need to make sure that you're keeping things um, up to speed and up to scratch. So it's um, we're fast approaching question time, and we've got some uh, questions in the in the question window. But um, again, a little bit of encouragement to uh, uh, to ask some questions, and let's uh, talk about where you can get some help. And uh, whilst uh, you you all 
desperately type very quickly uh, all your, your your burning questions. So. Um, a shameless plug, I, if you want to know more about uh, GDPR, I wrote a book about GDPR. It's one of the first books um, um, to uh, talk about how to become compliant uh, in GDPR. Um, it was the number one uh, bestseller in uh, Amazon's uh, business law category. And um, I don't think it's been out of the number 10 in that uh, category, uh, sorry, out of the top 10 in that category since it's been released. So um, it's out there, it's um, in paperback format, although I don't think you can order paperback directly to uh, Bermuda, but you guys will, will know uh, better, than, uh, better than I do. Um, but it's also available as a uh, Kindle ebook. So do please uh, take a look at that if you want to know more about GDPR. It'll also help with your understanding of PIPA. If you still want uh, yet more information, um, FISTEP uh, provides a lot of free information out there. Do please visit our, our, our website, uh, fistep.com. And uh, we've got podcasts out there. We've got blogs. We've got uh, videos. We've got best practice guides. We've got a heap of material out there. Um, all about uh, data privacy and NYCRR 500 GDPR. And we'll have an increasing amount about uh, PIPA over the, uh, the coming months as well. Obviously, any point in time, you can get in contact with uh, FISTEP at info at FISTEP.com and um, visit FISTEP website. And you can follow us on social media. So um, uh, follow us on uh, Twitter uh, at FISTEP. And you can find us on LinkedIn. If you search for FISTEP Limited or go to uh, linkedin.com forward slash company and then FIP hyphen step hyphen uh, limited, uh, you'll find us there. So we've reached that important time of, uh, of question time. So we've got a few questions here. Um, still time to ask uh, some more questions though, if, uh, if anyone's got any burning issues. So uh, let's see, we've got a question here from David. Um, so maybe it'll come, maybe you'll come onto this later, uh, but what's the impact and need for compliance on regulatory bodies uh, with PIPA? Um, is this known yet? Um, no, it's not stated within the act as to um, uh, you know, regulatory bodies are not drawn out or talked about explicitly. Uh, governmental bodies are, are talked about. Um, so um, I guess in that respect, um, it, um, you might draw some parallels there. But at this point in time, my, um, my belief and my uh, recommendation to you would be um, to believe that you are covered by PIPA and the requirement for you um, to comply with, uh, with PIPA. Um, that's going to mean that you're collecting a lot of data. And I know, David, that would be exactly why you're asking the question, I would imagine. You're collecting a lot of data that may be uh, personal data um, and even personal sensitive data um, from some of the organizations that you're, uh, that you're regulating. Thank you, um, thank you, Sean, for liking my um, erasure joke. Um, I'm not uh, making any judgment there on, um, uh, on whether that puts us in the same age group. I think you're probably a little bit younger than I am, but uh, thank you anyway. Um, and um, the last, uh, the last question I've, um, that I've got here. There's a couple of duplicate questions to, uh, uh, or some questions I've already answered, but. Um, uh, is it also possible to get a copy of the slides? It absolutely is, and they'll be available from the Fifth Step website. Uh, you can um, uh, visit those, but you'll also get an email uh, reminding you uh, that a copy of the uh, of the of the webinar is available as a both a podcast and will be available as a video. So if you've got colleagues who couldn't make it today, or indeed if you're um, so enamoured with listening to my voice and my jokes about erasure that you want to come back and um, listen a second or third time, then it will actually be available as a video podcast, sorry, a video as well. Uh, we post them out onto YouTube. So if that's something that, you, uh, that you'd that you like to do, then do keep an eye on the Fifth Step website, uh, check back in a couple of days time, and we'll have that loaded up there and you'll be able to watch it to your heart's content. And do please remember, if you've got any questions subsequently, either on a second watching or indeed, um, if you are um, listening to this and didn't attend the, the webinar live, then do, to, do please reach out. Um, drop an email through to info at fiststep.com. If there's no more uh, other questions, because there was about uh, half a dozen there, but I think I've answered, covered them all as we go through, uh, as we went through. Um, if there's no more questions, I'm going to wrap this podcast up and thank you again uh, for your time. I hope you found it useful. Um, this is one of the first podcasts, I think, uh, and webinars um, that's been specifically about 
uh, Pippa, and I hope to do others and to you know continue to raise awareness. Um, FISTEP has been in Bermuda for the last um, five years, uh, working with uh, our clients there. So we're very much um, you know uh, vested and a vested interest in in helping Bermudian organisations uh, and those new and old in Bermuda um, become compliant with this regulation. It's a real thing, you know, it's something real, really um, will really improve our business in Bermuda is my opinion, and really help those in Bermuda feel as if they've got control of their data. So with that, thank you very much for your time. And I hope to speak to you again on a, another webinar in future. Thanks very much. Thank you.